Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number 55. We are excited to have a special guest with us today, and I'll introduce him in just a moment. And as our listeners know, we normally start by going around the table and mentioning books that we've been reading or something we've been working on. And in light of our special guests, we've all been reading and working on sort of the same things. Uh, So I'll name a few of those. Uh, We've all been reading through the Wingfeather Saga, and we've all been reading through a book, Adorning the Dark, which speaks about the community, calling, and mystery of making. Uh, sort of a discussion on the creative process. And uh, our guest has just released, as of yesterday, a brand new book called The God of the Garden. And we're excited to have him here for our books and business to talk about this new book with him. And so if you haven't figured it out yet, if you haven't recognized it by the titles, our guest is Andrew Peterson. Andrew, thanks for being here with us. Yeah, man. Glad to be with you guys. Thank you. Yeah, Andrew is an award-winning singer, songwriter, and author. Uh, Both uh, the second and the fourth book of his Wingfeather Saga has won awards for youth literature. In 2008, driven by a desire to cultivate, I love that word, a strong Christian arts community, Andrew founded a ministry called The Rabbit Room, which led to a yearly conference, countless concerts and symposiums, and Rabbit Room Press, which has published 30 books to date. He's been married for 24 years to his wife, Jamie, and who, with whom they have three children. His eldest son is, is an animation student at Lipscomb University. His second son is a touring drummer and record producer, and his daughter recently released her first album. In his spare time, Andrew keeps bees, builds dry stack stone walls, gardens, which we'll, we will talk about, uh, draws, and sleeps. I, I love that little last nugget there. In his, in his free time, he likes to sleep. That's wonderful. Uh, So, Andrew, again, thanks for being here. Uh, We'll just kick off. Tell us about your new book that you've been working on, God of the Garden. Yeah. um, Well, it's great to be with y'all. Sorry I said y'all again. Uh, That's wonderful. We love it. Just keep them coming. The the y'all count is two. We'll keep track. So far. Um, So, the God of the Garden released uh, just recently, and it's kind of my COVID book. I was um, basically booted off the road back in March of 2020, and... Uh, and the, the publisher B and H who published adorning the dark, um, reached out and said, Hey, I know you're grounded. Do you want to write another book? Uh, which was a great honor. Um, and I, I of course wanted to, but I also had no ideas, uh, for what that book would be. And the more I thought about it, um, I decided to, um, expand, expand the chapter basically in adorning the dark that is about our property. Um, I, when I wrote the book about creativity, um, my editor um, <clears throat> emailed me uh, after he read the first draft and he was like, hey, can I just suggest that it, it, he said it's kind of odd that that you have written this whole book about the creative process and this life, uh, uh, you know, as a Christian trying to make stuff, but but you, ha- you haven't mentioned your property. And so, and it hadn't really occurred to me, but uh, I was like, oh yeah, I guess that's true. Um, a big part of what has fed our lives here for the last uh, few decades um, has been the land and the place. And so I wrote a chapter in Adorning the Dark about how we ended up here, how learning to take care of a little piece of property has shaped us 
um, how shaping the property has in turn shaped us, you know, and it, to my surprise, I've gotten more comments about that chapter in Adorning the Dark than, than any other one. There's a little writing group that we, you know, I'm not in a lot of writing groups, but there's a group of authors here in town and we were like, hey, let's just get together and not talk about what we're working on so much, but just get together, you know, and, and hang out. Because sometimes it's nice to just be around other people who are doing the work. And, um, and through conversations in that, I, I began to realize that uh, trees were a good framework uh, for the book. I, I love trees and I've been reading a lot about trees lately. And, uh, and I remember significant trees in my own childhood. And so I thought, why don't I just start writing about those and see what happens? And, and uh, a year later, there was a book. That was kind of uh, fascinating on a couple of accounts, just uh, the community component, uh, which is something that we're really, um, I mean, we see, as you do too, a biblical basis for that. I mean, the church is a community. And even within the church, throughout Ecclesiastes chapter four, the Old Testament, you know, why are you living life alone? That's like not the way God designed it. You're supposed to live life with others. So that community component, and then this whole thing with creation, we don't have to have gardens today. Uh, you can just go to the grocery store. In fact, I've seen people joke around about how, hey, go you, you got those tomatoes. I just spent, what, a dollar? <laughs> Was it really worth all the work? <laughs> and we have a little garden in our backyard. Uh, and it's, I, I, I don't know, I mean, how to explain it or say it or communicate it. And and I want to be careful not to worship the creation. I want to worship the creator and that kind of gets into like some of the questions we even want to ask you, especially about trees and how big and magnificent and beautiful that they are. And, and these, these creations of God that um, take so long. I don't know, just that component of nature and enjoying nature. And then just by enjoying nature, enjoying the God that made nature. Yeah, well, we're, you know, we were... Uh, a few years ago, I, I love Wendell Berry. He's, I think he's one of the great American authors. Um, and he, I was at a conference that he spoke at <clears throat> and the guy that was kind of moderating it, um, he was talking about gardening and, and uh, not just gardening, farming, like in the, the breakdown of community that happened in the last hundred years or so with big agriculture coming in and buying up all the farms and, you know, for all of creation, communities have centered around agriculture and uh, and the growing of things because this is what we need to eat. And and there's something there's a beautiful symbiosis, you know, between caring for the land and the people that live there. And it's what we were made for. Right. Um, but so Wendell Berry has been writing for years about um, kind of like waving his hands in the background saying, hey, we're losing something really important about what it means to be human by losing our connection to the land and to place. And, um, I happen to agree with that. And I, at this, uh, this conference I was at, uh, the guy, it was three or 400 people. And these were all people who were wanted to come listen to a farmer talk. Right. And so he said, raise your hand if your grandparents were farmers and almost the whole room, raised their hand. I could raise my hand. My, my grandfather was a farmer. Um, you guys are in Iowa. You probably know a lot of farmers. And he goes, raise your hands if, uh, your parents are farmers and like 70% of the room put their hands down and he said, raise your hand. You are a farmer. And there were like six people with their hands raised. And it was like in two generations, you saw 
this this wealth of knowledge and understanding about the way that God made creation and how he made us to to learn how he works through the way growing things work and and all of that just gets whittled down to like you said grocery stores and uh and so you know because of this little sliver of culture in the west that we live in uh in this little sliver of time where when you read the new testament i'm reading isaiah right now and and there's all these uh a lot of conversation about roots and seeds and growing that you only understand in an academic sense if you don't actually grow something, you know, but to, to understand what it's like for, uh, to be rooted in a place or to prune a vine, uh, or whatever it may be, um, to know it in your body is to know it in a different way. You know what I mean? In a deeper and profound way. And so there's a sense in which God has been, uh, showing us what he's like from the beginning, you know, he made the world in this way and he made us to take care of the world in this way. And, and he's, and Jesus and the prophets, they all say, if you want to know what God is like, he's like this. And they point at the ground or they point at storms coming or they point at whatever. And, uh, and we, and now, you know, in America, we kind of nod and go, yeah, cool. Okay. Things grow. But if, if you actually are, if you, you depend on the earth to survive, that's a lot like the tree of life in the garden of Eden. <laughs> you know, if, if you, if you eat this thing, this is what actually sustains your life. And, uh, and I just, it grieves me to think that um, so many of us live in a world where we're cut off from that deeper knowledge of, of the way the Lord works. You know, there's definitely something to that because a year ago, it's like a year ago today, I was uh, backpacking in the mountains of Idaho and there's some, some experience that happens when you're up on the top of that mountain and you can see it and you kind of can zoom out and see what God has done. And you're so right in our, in our little box lives of comfort, we kind of miss that. And, you know, and it kind of plugs right on into, you know, C.S. Lewis and that longing aspect, like you see that and you, you instantly realize and long for something and it is a connection to the creator, which is so awesome that we get to do that as humans, but we often miss it. I think so. There's a, so I forget who told me this a long time ago, but the, the ancient Christians used to say there are two books of, of revelation, uh, that there's the book of scripture and there's the book of nature. And, uh, and I think that scripture is obviously wonderful and important. And, you know, if you really want to know the Lord, read the Bible, um, but also pay attention to the world that he made. Uh, like look closely at it, you know, um, consider the ant, you know, so the, there's, there's plenty of, plenty of uh, precedent for the fact that we have a lot to learn about the, the mind of, and the heart of God through his creation. And so I, as a kid who grew up, I grew up uh, until I was seven, I lived in the Midwest too, and, and have the most wonderful memories of harvest time and corn and uh, you know, a, a community that, whose identity was partly found in the fact that they grew things, you know? Um, and so, uh, so I have this soft spot for it. And then moving to Florida, it was the same thing. There was this, this very, I, I remember being unsettled by the wildness of Florida, um, as a little boy. Um, but I've al always loved, uh, sunsets and storms and creations. Part of the reason that why uh, Rich Mullins's music caught my imagination was because he seemed to have his eyes wide open for the beauty and wonder of creation, and and to to marry that to scripture and to what it is that we know about Jesus was so moving to me. 
And to this day, uh, all creatures of our God and King, you know, the hymns that we sing, uh, joyful, joyful, we adore thee, has these wonderful lyrics about creation in them. And, and I always perk up a little bit inside. I, I kind of like come awake a little bit because I'm like, Ooh, I know what you're talking about there, you know? And so, uh, anyway, I just, uh, part of the reason I wanted to write this book was to kind of stir up some of that curiosity in people and to say, Hey, um, uh, it's, will bless you immeasurably to, to move through the world with your eyes open, uh, not just to the people. And obviously the people that we interact with are, you know, the crown of God's creation, but the, the, uh, but all around us, there's this canvas that he's painted. And so anyway, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at in, in some ways. Andrew, are you familiar with Clyde Kilby's, uh, 10 resolutions for mental health that John Piper famously quoted about 10 years ago. No, He's got this. So Clyde Kilby taught at Wheaton. He's like a CS Lewis guy. And he said, one of his resolutions was I shall open my eyes and ears once every day. I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. I shall not then be concerned at all to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. I shall joyfully allow them the mystery of what Lewis calls their divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic existence. And he's quoting Lewis when Lewis said, talking about another author, that his work had enchanted me in his an imaginative way. It turned out to be the quality of the real universe, divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic in which we all live. As I was reading your book on the garden, it seemed like you took both of those quotes and just did that you showed us like how great it is and so i think it's 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 a shame that we live in uh boxes we've created and we don't go outside at night and look at the stars and all that so i really like that i thought that was a great part of your book i appreciated that it also had a little bit of a hobbit feel i don't know if you were going for that (laughs) that, yeah i i love that quote um and I will look it up because I think that's marvelous. Um, and, and I do that a lot. It's funny. My kids make fun of me because um, they look out the window of our house and they will often see me just standing and staring. And and I'll hear them laughing, you know, through the window. They were like, we see you. <laughs> and, uh, and I feel kind of embarrassed. And somebody asked me one time, they were like, man, I, I you know, are you out? You must get all these song ideas and blah, blah, blah. And to be honest, when I'm out, like this morning, I got up before dawn and I was walking the property and I had like almost no thoughts in my mind. Like I'm not looking at it and, and trying to like extract from it some metaphor, uh, that will serve me. Um, I find that like when I'm really kind of lost to it, you're in this state of just being and presentness. And, um, it's weird. It's kind of, it was embarrassing at first. Cause I felt like, am I dumb? <laughs> like, well, like, why am I not thinking deep thoughts while I'm staring at this tree right now? But I'm just not <laughs> like, I'm, you're just staring at the tree and enjoying the tree and its treeness, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm not like, yeah, get something. I'm just trying to receive, receive what it has to offer. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, Hey, if you could ask Andrew Peterson one question, what would it be? And it actually dovetails with what you just said. Uh, he said that Tolkien described writing the Lord of the Rings as discovering the story more than like creating the story. And so as you're writing these books, and I'm thinking a little bit specifically of the Wingfeather saga, but also these books, does it ever feel like that for you? And if it does, is there like a time where as you're writing it, it's like it's, you're discovering it too? Is there any passage or portion you think of? Yeah, the, more so in the fiction than the nonfiction. The nonfiction feels... Um feels different somehow, but yeah, there is this sense of excavating, 
um, when you're working on a story. And, you know, you uh, there were several times in the Wingfeather saga where uh, certain things showed up in the story that I didn't expect um, and things that felt like they were always meant to be, you know, the, in the... Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment in book three where, uh, a character shows up and I'm not going to spoil anything for anybody, but the there you uh, go, character Andy. shows up. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm only through book one and I'm like, it's okay. We got you, but I don't <laughs> be very careful. Uh, but the, a character arrives in book three that when I realized that that was what was happening, you know, I was writing the book. I came home from the coffee shop where I was working that day, kind of frustrated and, uh, felt stuck. And I told my wife, it was a hard day today because I've got this scene and this thing happens and I have no idea why this is happening. I was just writing and whatever. And then all of a sudden the dots connected, the light bulb went on and I I just saw the end of the book kind of like immediately in this rush. And I burst into tears because it was super sad to me because I was like, Oh no, I didn't want that character to die. Um, But I had this real sense that, that's that was what needed to happen and you know i was in england last month and this this guy uh brought his daughter uh to the show and he was like yeah we're reading book one or oh man i'm I'm gonna spoil something else for you i'm trying not to she he, he said she's upset with you because this character died she wants to know why you killed the character and i said oh i didn't kill the character the fangs killed the character that's an awesome answer kind of blew her mind, but that's how it feels when you're writing the book. You're like, I'm not deciding right now that like, Oh, I'm going to kill off. So-and-so this, the story quote unquote wants something to happen. And you are the midwife. You're helping this thing uh, get born. Um, and you, obviously you do make choices, but there's this mystery at work, you know, um, anybody who's ever like run into the problems with Calvin, you know, hard predestination kind of Calvinism, you know, like you can hold both both sides of the coin at once and say somehow or another, the Lord is completely sovereign. And also he he really dearly loves our freedom. And I cannot reconcile those logically. There is a mystery at work here. And uh, and I only really un- began to understand that or at least made room for the possibility that the both can be true at once when I was writing a book and telling a story, because when you're writing a novel, like you are utterly in charge. You know what I mean? Like I, I can choose to do anything, but there's also this sense in which I, I really want these characters to be real. I want them to feel real. I want them to ha- make their own choices and I can give them that freedom without ever once losing sight of who they were going to become at the end of the story. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I can hold to the end of their story and give them all kinds of wiggle room in the middle. And so you know, in a very small human way, I get to be sovereign over their story while also giving them freedom. And so fighting your way through a, a fantasy novel is a great way to understand, once again, uh, a little nugget of who God is and how he works, you know. Um, and so anyway, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think Tolkien obviously was a genius. Nobody will ever come close again to what he was able to do. And he was like, deep excavating because, you know, he was figuring out the etymology of words and, uh, and there, there is a sense in which the, the, that's a whole different level of, of what you're talking about than what I was doing. Just mentioning Tolkien there. I know some, some people who read him and they almost get, uh, I don't think frustrated is the right word, but, uh, maybe bogged down with the, almost the extensiveness to which he's trying to describe 
the setting or, you know, it's, it's, it's apt to discuss when we're talking about nature, mm-hmm. the God of the garden. And here's Tolkien, like describing every little thing that's happening around this, this movement. Um, do you think that's important when we write to be oh, very yeah. creative and descriptive, or is there something to be said for a short, pithy, quick statement? Like, what do you think about that? Well, I think the part of the spell of the Lord of the Rings is the sense that it actually happened. Um, the sense that you're reading history and, and it, like the detail I was, I saw this exhibit in Oxford a few years ago, a, a Tolkien exhibit that had all, all these first drafts and stuff. And it was just amazing to see. Uh, but there was a, um, a calendar on which he had charted out the phases of the moon, you know, so that when the hobbits looked at the, the moon and he had to align up, align, uh, Frodo and Sam's story with, Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas' story timeline wise so that when the moon was this full at this point, it would, you know, look this full to the others. Anyway, like the extent to which he cared about those details is amazing. But I think that that's part of why you close the book and you just you feel like you've been in another world, you know, Uh, breathtaking what he was doing. But place, the importance of place, um, the fact that the setting is almost its own character in the story is so important, especially if you're writing fantasy, like the world building, you know, Tolkien said that it's like one of the highest, uh, highest functions of a human, of the human imagination is to build worlds. You know, uh, mm-hmm. we make by the manner in which we're made, I think is how he put it in one of the poems. And so, um, anyway, I just, I, I think that, yes, I get why people get bogged down in it. And, you know, the council of Elrond who loves to read that, um, but once you've read it a few times and you begin, you, you, you then be, it's like eating your vegetables. You then start to crave the thing that you hated the first time. Yep. And you're like, oh man, no, this is, this is some of the good stuff. But, uh, but yeah, pl- Tolkien lived in a place with a capital P, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever been to Oxford, but like, there is no place like it. You go there and there is a, a sense of history and rootedness that you feel there. And it's not just that like Des Moines is a place too. Right. And like when I read Leif Anger, who's a Minnesota author, like he's, he unabashedly loves Minnesota and, and makes me love Minnesota too, because he loves Minnesota. And I think, you know, because of not, not to keep harping on God of the garden, but I I wrote some of this in there about this idea that in America, um, I think it's because it's we we have so much space here <laughs> that people haven't really slowed down and considered. Do we really need to to tear down that forest to build that shopping mall? Um, like all around me in Nashville are new subdivisions because the city's growing, um, and it just grieves me to to know that there are you know giant trees that are getting cut down all the time, um, and we're losing our sense of place. Every subdivision looks the same. You can't really write about your subdivision in a way that makes it your subdivision because it looks like every other subdivision in America, you know? Mm. And I think that uh, we're losing something really crucial and beautiful. So part of the point of the book is to recover some of that wonder and, and to, to ask questions about better ways to build things. So one quick story about that, and this does connect to Tolkien. Um, We were uh, um, (laughs) in uh, a friend, a neighbor of mine, um, who pulled up to my house one day with this woman who was doing research on cemeteries in our little corner of Davidson County and uh, like old family cemeteries. She was trying to like 
document where they were. And I was like, oh, I actually know where one is. It's it's just over the top of the hill, 1800s. There's like six six graves. It looks like something out of a Disney movie. You know, the graves are all kind of crooked and you can barely read the names on them. And she was like, oh, I knew about that one, but I'm wondering if you know of any over here. And I asked her later, I was like, hey, why are you, why are you doing this? She was like, well, because all the subdivisions are coming in. And, um, and if we don't document the presence of these cemeteries, then they will bulldoze over them. They don't care. Like the guys that buy these big tracts of land and turn them in subdivision, they don't want to know that there was a family cemetery there. Um, because if they do, then the city, there are all these regulations that they have to do. So they, they kind of close their ears and just bulldoze over family cemeteries. It's heartbreaking, right? So she took me one, yeah. one day to a, she was taking me to see an old oak tree and, uh, it was on the edge of a subdivision. She was like, yeah, right over there where that culvert is, there was a family cemetery. And just beyond that, there was the, the, uh, the slave cemetery, um, which was unmarked. You can see them because there are depressions in the ground. And it's like, these were real people with real lives. And now there's just, it's like poltergeist, you know, they're building houses on top of cemetery. Yeah. Um, but it's like, where has our sense of respect for the past gone? Where's our sense of place gone? Like it, it just breaks my heart. So contrast that with this summer, my wife and I were in England and we went on a footpath walk through the hills of England. And it's just as hobbity as you can imagine. It's the best thing. It's Amen. probably my very mm. favorite thing in the world um, because you can use public footpaths to, to wander across farmland and whatever. And we went to this place called Roll Right Stones. And it was their Bronze Age standing stones. Um, and uh, there's a cluster of stones that are like six or eight feet tall, leaning against each other. And they're called the Whispering Knights. And uh, I was reading the history of the thing. And it said that underneath it, they discovered that there was a tomb where they would bury uh, lots of people. And there were ceremonies and there was a big ring of stones over here. And I was just so fascinated by it. And then I found out later that it's, it's where Tolkien got the, it's what he based the Barrow Downs on. And, and I was there geeking out about the fact that wow. there were these cool stones and then underneath it were these barrows of, of bones. And I, I posted about it on Instagram and somebody was like, oh, yeah, that's Roll Right Stones. That's he would have walked there. And that's where he based the barrow. Down. So here's here's a intertom Bombadil. Exactly. So <laughs> here's a, a cemetery in in Cane Ridge where I live that is getting bulldozed over to make room for more subdivisions. And we lose it. Right. Yeah. And whereas there. Uh, they've recovered it and it's not only entered into our favorite book, <laughs> my favorite book, uh, but it's also a story of its own sitting there that people walk to all the time. Anyway, I don't know. I've never said, tried to compare the two, but that's, that's what I feel like is, is missing. So if sure. you're, so Tolkien lived in a place where place mattered. And I think that's part of the power of his books is that he really, he knew that, that, that being grounded in a place is a, is a significant part of the story that we're living. And, and I think we've lost that in America to some degree. I don't think it's too late to recover it. Uh, mm. But, but we've, we've lost a lot of that. So, you know, Tolkien is great. Tolkien is great, but we really want to hear about your books. Okay. Ah. So not, not in a sense of comparison, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm, so you, you actually, I think said enough about book three without spoiling it. That is, 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 is very perfect because I've been telling Andy, I think book three, what happens in book three is, uh, you know, and I know I'm biased and I, I'd love to hear what you think about this. I mean, there's four books for a reason, right? But I think book three has a big, a bigger impact, I think, than book four, even wow. with what happens, how it, how it is led up to. But I, I mean, I don't want to give anything away because, you know, I don't want to spoil it. But I do, I have a question about 
uh, and I, I'm failing to remember which book it's in now. I think it is in book two or three, but there is throughout the story, there are these songs and those songs take on quite a significant meaning in the flow and the, the, the mystical nature of what's happening with the uh, wing feathers. Yes. And so how, how did you craft those songs? I'm thinking specifically, there's this song, uh, my love has gone across the sea. And did you form some sort of mythology behind those songs? Did you just, you know, like it just come to you? Did you like, oh, I need to write a song for this to happen? Mm. Uh, you know, because as I've interacted with those songs and you can jump on Spotify, I think it's your daughter actually sings yeah. that song. Mm -hmm. And uh, once you catch sort of the, the power of what's happening in the transforming of the story, th those songs become very impactful. Mm. And so I'm just curious, how was that a part of the process of writing the, the wing feather books with the, with the music? Yeah. Um, so a lot of them were just, it just felt like there needed to be a song here. Some of them are goofy, you know, some of them are just funny songs. Some are spooky, you know, uh, nursery rhyme kind of things. Um, and most of the time I would just, I wrote most of these books in a coffee house. And so I would be sitting there and I would just think, ah, I need a brain break. I'll just write, you know, a little poem. The, the nice thing about writing a song for a book is that you don't have to compose any music for it. It's just, it's just words. We let the reader imagine what the music is like. Um, and then, uh, but the, the time that where that happened, that was the most significant was my love has gone across the sea. Um, and I wrote it like that. I was like, I, there's an artist named Kate Rusby who write is like this kind of Irishy British Isle sounding folk songs with, you know, whistles and bagpipes and stuff. Great band. And, uh, and I was like, Oh yeah. A lot of the songs that she writes, uh, you know, there are these like, uh, old murder ballads, you know, and, uh, songs that have been sung in pubs for 500 years where, and they usually involve somebody dying tragically and, or somebody killing someone, whatever. And, uh, and, and a lot of them end up being about sailors who have left, who are people who were lost at sea, you know? And so I was like, oh, I'm going to write one about, you know, the classic, the, the, the bride is home and she's standing on the shores waiting for her husband to come back from the sea. And, uh, and so in that moment I was sitting in the coffee shop and I was like, oh, I'm going to do a twist on that and make it so that her husband sails away. And when he doesn't return, instead of just being sad, she's actually going to go and find him and track him down, even if it kills her. Um, and I wrote that and was like, oh yeah, that's kind of a fun song. And then it wasn't until I was, I had come back and was editing the first draft of the book that I realized that that, the theme of that song was actually the theme of the whole book. Um, uh, that there was a, that happens in the book. And it, again, it was like that excavation thing. It's like you're subconscious, the Holy spirit. There's a lot of things happening in concert there um, where I just was like, it kind of took my breath away that I realized that the song had very subtly undergirded the, the, the whole point of the story which is that love is not content to just be sad. Love, love pursues, you know? And, uh, and so that's, um, that's the most significant time. And then the last poem in the whole book that the thing that closes it, the other one that would, um, has some significance. I think the rest of them are, were just kind of goofy. <laughs> I can't remember for sure. So this is just a, I'm just curious. How did you, what made you use silly names in wing feather? You got thwaps and fangs and toothy cows. And what, what made you think in this story, I'm going to infuse this much silliness. Cause there are parts of it. They're very, very serious. So what, what 
any inspiration point for that or why that came? I was just fun. I like weird words. My kids uh, helped name a lot of the stuff. And I was writing, my kids were about the age of uh, Timothy's kids when I was working on those stories. I'm assuming those are your kids back there. Hey, children. Um, and <laughs> so I was just trying to write something that would, that was the target audience. And so I thought, I'm going to make this as fun as possible. And I love in the Harry Potter books how, how the, the kind of, how you've got Dumbledore, like what a goofy name. But by the end of the Harry Potter books, you are not thinking what a goofy name. He, you just accept it, you know? So I loved that combination <laughs> of slightly cartoony, campy, funny stuff with this really epic steak kind of story. Um, I, I just geeked out about that. But, you know, the Narnia books are the same way. Um, Duffel Puds. Um, or right truffle there. hunter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. there, Total <next laughs> glum. So, so you've got, uh, I don't know. I just enjoy the sound of work. Yeah. And, and, uh, okay. Yeah. It was, it was supposed to be, I, I, I like, I wanted it to be funny and meaningful. Well, it definitely, you nailed that because, uh, my first interaction with the wing feather books, I mean, Timothy, Tim, uh, doc, Dr. Little, um, <clears throat> He had been recommending them. I'd seen them in our bookstore, uh, but it wasn't until a friend was like, you really need to read these. And so I was, I was on a trip uh, going uh, across the West and we were actually driving through a snowstorm in Yellowstone hmm. and we we're listening on audiobook to the first book and just the sways of humor to serious, I think are, it's done very well. But the first time you're introduced, for example, like to Pete the, Pete the Sock Man, you're like, what in the world <laughs> is happening? So that's wonderful. Uh, but kind of as we close here, uh, obviously, we, we are a little group where I would say, with the exception of Tim, who's actually doing some real writing, uh, you know, we're trying to, but uh, our creative process is more so being poured into this podcast. And uh, you mentioned in Adoring the Dark, this idea of community and how that is important. We've kind of talked on it before. What really stuck out to me was you just, you had this footnote and you're like, Oh yeah, we have this little songwriting group. And one of them was this gal, Laura story. And you're, and I did exactly what I think you anticipated like, wait, that Laura story. And then you're like, yeah, that Laura story. And then you talk about how you had this little group and how she crafted one of her more popular songs, just, you know, driving across the countryside, she comes to the house and is like, guys, I think I've got something here. And she plays it. And you're like, it's just so pithy. You're like, yeah, it actually was good. Chris, Chris Tomlin thought it was pretty good. And, uh, and so could you just maybe speak to that? Like how important is it that we do things like this, where we have a community of creativity, of thinking, you know, our kind of motto is good thoughts, good books, good conversations. Mm -hmm. How important is that to a Christian and then also to a Christian artist? Man, that's a great question. Uh, I, it looks different for everybody, but I think it's crucial. I, I think that um, if you are going to be engaged in the creative process, especially with a kingdom building mindset, like if you're, if like you're, you're thinking uh, it's not that everything you has to be, you, you write has to be like on the nose. This is explicitly, um, a gospel saturated thing. Um, if you were a Christian and the Holy spirit indwells you, then that's just going to happen either way. And so if that's what you're doing, um, then there's an enemy that wants you to not do that. 
And, and, uh, just like every good, scary movie, he wants to isolate you, you know? And so, uh, so don't, don't let yourself work in isolation. Like that's one of the great gifts of the church is that we get to, we get to work in community with people. Um, and so, yeah, being intentional about getting together on a fairly regular basis, talking about what you're working on, encouraging each other. Um, I think it's great and it can look so many different ways. Like I, I don't like writing groups. I don't like the idea of, people reading something that I'm working on and then passing judgment on it, that would crush my soul. I just would rather <laughs> not. I would rather work on the whole thing. I'll talk about what I'm working on um, sure. uh, and just kind of hang out uh, with my friends. But, but I, I think the, the best thing you're going to get out of a group like that is the friendships, not the, not the books you're writing. And so if you kind of notch the books down one and elevate the, the fact that, um, we live in a culture where it's really hard to find time to get together with your buddies. Um, make that the reason you're doing the thing. It's like the books become an afterthought. Uh, then that gives the books actually the freedom to, to become something better than you think they're going to be. Um, so I think it's really important. There were seasons in my life, like with Laura story where I, uh, me and Eric Peters and Laura and Ben Shive, we were on the road together. We kind of pinky swore, Hey, let's write a song a week. We'll share it with each other. And yeah, that's great. It's a great exercise for a season in your life. But um, but I don't think any of us would do that now. I think that we're um, that served its purpose and we're on to other things. So I would ha- heartily recommend Bandersnatch by um, Diana Pavlek Glyer. She's a she, yes. You know that who I'm talking about. She, uh, I actually wanted to jump in with a quote from that book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's so interestingly good. enough. Well, because you mentioned, you know, sharing your works and then have people pass judgment on them. What I thought was one of the most humorous parts of that book was hearing how one of the Inklings, Hugo Dyson, hated, hated the Lord of the Rings. And when Tolkien would walk in and have another manuscript, he would just fawn over this couch and just, or fan over this couch and, oh, not another Hobbit, not another, you know, he just hated it. And I think that would be tough for most, but, you know, Tolkien is, thankfully he was quite stubborn. So he was stubborn, but he was also human. And like, there's, he he was like, not sure anybody would ever care about these books, you know? And Lewis of course was like the original fanboy. He was the one who's, who, who encouraged him to keep writing, please keep writing. I've got an, don't listen to that other guy. So you need, you need people in your life who are going to resonate with what you're doing and encourage you to keep going. And then you need to in turn do the same for them. Um, and so I just, you know, I don't want to make too much of poetry and novel writing because it's poetry and novel writing. Um, on one hand, it's, it's profoundly important. You know, I think that humans, we were wired to respond to these things. Um, just like we were wired to respond to, to gardening and, you know, eating the tomatoes off the vine and not from the grocery store. Um, so, but, but part of the, the, the beauty of it is that they are kind of frivolous. They're not necessary. I remember Rich Mullins saying that, that, uh, that that his favorite thing about music is that it's so unnecessary, but life wouldn't be worth much without it. So the Lord has made this world where there is a lot of unnecessary beauty out there. And, and I think that, uh, it is a brave and, and quote unquote foolish thing to engage in the making of these unnecessary things. Um, because we believe that by the power of the Holy spirit, these things can actually turn the rudder on someone's whole life, you know, and it confounds the enemy who only knows how to destroy, not to create. Right. Um, and so if you are wading into the battle of trying to create something good and beautiful, then you need to do it with a band of brothers or sisters, um, uh, and who will, who will tell you the truth and in love. 
Speaking of the band of yeah. brothers, I've got a band of brothers behind me, and they just wanted to say thank you. Hey, dudes. Thank you for writing the Wing Feather Saga. Oh, man, it's my honor. Thank you for reading it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I thought it was really thank good. You. Thank yeah. you. We listened to you read it uh, during COVID through, I think, YouTube or something for a while, but then... Um, well, we were too interested in the story and you were going too slow. So dad <laughs> sped us I'm along. I'm so glad to hear that. That's great. <laughs> My kids are big fans of the Wing Feather Saga yeah. and they wanted to say thank you. So yeah. I figured I'd bring them on. Thank you guys. Quick. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. Well, I feel like a fitting way to close our podcast as you were talking there. Uh, it's not about the, the writing group is not about the writing in the book group is not about the books. It's about the friendships. And we have a C.S. Lewis quote on all of our mugs and T-shirts. The little knots of friends who turn their backs on the world are those who really transform it. Oh. And that is in a chapter on friendship. Great. And uh, Andrew, thank you for being a part of that with us, where we all love fiction and toothy cows and, you know, all that good stuff. And uh, But it's about these relationships. And uh, thank you for coming and being an honorary thinkling with us. We'd love to have you back again. You write another book, you let us know. And uh, Tim will get a bunch of copies for the bookstore. Thank you. You Appreciate you guys. Yes. Any closing thoughts, anyone? I really enjoyed Adorning the Dark and I'm loving Wing Feather. So I can't wait to read book two and three and four. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate your ministry in Word. That's the part that I've interacted with most and uh, your investment in the imagination even of my children. So thanks a lot. Yeah, It's my, my honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.